Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is made possible with the support of Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotelconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. His New Year's resolution is to just once get through a show without eliciting another listener correction. He's Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. Granted, this is one kind of asked for. But... <laughs> well, in his New Year's resolution is not to get suckered into any promotion, cash, flights, or anything, just to get more frequent flyer miles. He's NPR <laughs> Zero Now Transportation Analyst, Seth Cap. Don't need more of those right now. Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. Today, it sounds too good to be true. Scientists turning carbon dioxide into jet fuel? Plus another milestone for the 737 MAX, but not everybody is happy about it. First, though, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. A group of scientists have managed to turn carbon dioxide into jet fuel. That, according to some rather optimistic-sounding media coverage, Phys.org, for example, it's PHYS.org, writes, a team of researchers affiliated with several institutions in the UK and one in Saudi Arabia has developed a way to produce jet fuel using carbon dioxide as a main ingredient. I'll say that, carbon dioxide, I mean, the stuff that's emitted, right? As a main ingredient in their paper published in the journal Nature Communications, the group describes their process and its efficiency. The researchers use a process called the organic combustion method to convert carbon dioxide in the air into jet fuel and other products. And again, this has been covered in several respectable places. It involved using an iron catalyst. Testing showed uh, that over 20 hours, the process converted 38% of the carbon dioxide in a pressurized chamber into jet fuel and other products. The jet fuel made up 48%, so about half of the produced products. The others were water, propylene, ethylene. The researchers also note that using this jet fuel in aircraft would be carbon neutral because burning it would release the same amount of carbon that was used to make it. Okay, keep that in mind. The researchers also claim, though, that the process is less expensive than other methods used to produce fuel for airplanes, such as those that convert hydrogen and water into fuel primarily because it uses less electricity. Uh, they say conversion systems could be installed in plants that currently emit a lot of carbon dioxide, such as coal-fired power plants. So all that said, Ben, some of that is above my head or at least beyond my ability to sort of have the context. Like, I don't know when we hear 38% of the carbon dioxide managed to be converted. I don't know whether that's good or bad, you know, as a reference point. I don't know the fact that, you know, half of the product became jet fuel is good or bad. Again, they're saying carbon neutral as of now. Another question I have is, you know, as time goes on, could there be the kind of scale where it could be better than carbon neutral? Or is it just something inherent to this process where it's not ever going to be any better than carbon neutral? It's just going to be cheaper. What was your reaction at a high level when you saw this? Excited? Skeptical? I would say some of both. You know, clearly, 
airlines becoming greener and finding ways to emit less carbon is a good thing. And the idea of using alternative fuels has been around for a long while. This one seems to have a little more uh, substance to it. One of the reports I read about it, Seth, said that one of the surprising challenges they may have is finding enough carbon dioxide in a form easy to capture, which is yeah. kind of amazing when you think about it, to actually fuel the air, all the airplanes that should be flying at some point. Okay, so scale. Um, yeah, so scale might be an issue. It just, you know, is it... Is it really the same thing? Would changes have to be made to airplanes or not? Is it really as cheap? You know, what you can do in a lab versus really what is practical. Maybe it can be done, you know, in this chamber they did it, but can you really get it to every airport in big tanks so that planes can be loaded quickly and boarded and sent out? So I would have to say that I I don't want to discourage this kind of thinking. Obviously, Alternative fuels and finding ways to be friendly to the environment is just a great thing. On the other hand, I am skeptical as to whether or not this idea, which may work in a lab, as this report says, can really truly be made to be operational to fuel a world airline industry. But maybe it'll fuel a couple airplanes and that could be good. Yeah, scalability has been an issue with other alternative fuels. Uh, some of the earlier ones, the problem was they just over their life cycle weren't truly all that green. It turned out right that it that it just the energy it took to make the ostensibly green fuel just wasn't worth it. Uh, there have been some that at small scale have been more interesting, kind of the algae based fuels, that sort of thing. But again, scale, I keep saying it has been the issue. And now actually low oil prices ha- have just changed the economics to the point that it's tougher because whatever it costs to produce the alternative fuel, those already weren't cost competitive in a, in a very cheap fuel world that we live in right now, they're even less competitive. So they would require more subsidies, for example, of some sort, government incentives, those kinds of things uh, to, to get them up to any kind of scale, along with the technological progress that would have to be made Randy of St. Louis writes in our first listener question. Hi, guys. Love the show. Wanted to pick the brains of you two experts. My home airport, Lambert St. Louis, is a shell of what it used to be from its heydays of TWA dominating there. Uh, With that being said, I've gradually watched over the past few years the deterioration of flights from here. Southwest is dominant. And American as well as Delta have scaled back so much that it has me wondering what the future of St. Louis is. COVID has put the squeeze on an already crippled airports at a point that you can hardly catch an outbound flight after six o'clock at night most days. United has never been a big player, only flying to Chicago and Houston a couple times a day. And American and Delta have, uh, have flipped most of their limited routes to regional carriers. Alaska used to fly to Seattle and San Diego out of here, uh, but last year cut the San Diego route that was already being flown by a regional, SkyWest. All that to ask this, should a frequent flyer such as myself be worried uh, that St. Louis might end up going away for the most part? It really is nothing with what it used to be after 9-11. When AAA, uh, when American rather shifted everything to Chicago, it has been downhill since. Let me give you my answer, Randy, and then when you hear what Ben says, I think you get to a certain point where most of the cutting that's going to be happen that's going to happen has been made and where an airport is just meeting the demand of the local market. Okay. So in other words, when TWA was doing what it did there and, and then American for a short time after that, 
the airport was vastly overserved relative to local demand. And it was, as you said, Grandia, a hub. I mean, that, that was the point of it. They knew that. They, 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 it's not that they thought that you could fill all, the, all those planes with people who flying to or from St. Louis. I mean, that's the point of a hub. But those airports like St. Louis or Cincinnati or Memphis or Pittsburgh or Cleveland or Columbus at one point, we can name a lot of these airports that, that have been hubs at one time or another that are either not or essentially not anymore. You know, they all depended on the need for that hub by the hubbing airline. And especially, although not only because of consolidation, because there are fewer airlines, uh, just they don't, they don't need as many hubs as they once did. But the thing is, most of those airports at this point are just basically meeting the demand of the local market. And, and of course, everything is further deteriorated now because of COVID. Uh, service everywhere is down compared to where it was. But yeah, I think if you go back a couple years or even a year, what you had at St. Louis was just kind of what the place needed relative to the local market that's there now. And so it was something that was a lot smaller than it once was, but that should be sustainable again, control for COVID, right? This is going to be a while before we get back to pre-COVID levels, but nothing particular to St. Louis that's any different from those other places. You know, Kansas City in your general neighborhood, globally speaking, is a place that was that was once hubbed. And it was an even worse hub from an operational standpoint than uh, St. Louis. But you, know, you have the uh, local demand there. In that case, also a, a new airport coming. Ben, what, what do you think about that? Anything more daunting about the challenges in St. Louis than some of those other places that are a shadow of their former selves? I think you pretty much nailed that, Seth. I think that's right. There's some context to think around this, though. Years and years ago, I mean, after deregulation, but in sort of the heydays of the 1980s and early 1990s, there was hubbing was becoming so popular. There was an idea that I'm sure some of our listeners remember that people called wayports. The idea would be this huge airport in the middle of nowhere, but because it was built in the middle of nowhere, it could have you know lots of runways and really cheap real estate and would be this awesome place where you could fly from everywhere and people could connect and go everywhere. And you know, and people thought maybe that's like an idea. And when with that wayport idea, airports like St. Louis or Kansas City, or sort of these mid-continent airports, had appeal to them because they're right in the middle of the country, right? And so fly from all these East Coast cities there and then head to all these West Coast cities and do it really efficiently and connect a lot of people, and that made sense. But as hubs got built in places like St. Louis and Cincinnati and Pittsburgh and Memphis, and you can probably pick a number of other ones, right? Dayton, right? Yeah. What, what the industry started to realize is it's not just geography that makes hub hub work, but it's local market. If you're relying only on connecting traffic, you're, you're going to be competing with all other hubs and the yields or average fares that you're going to get are going to be much lower than if you're able to attract a local market that fills a good chunk of the plains. And that's where you see the biggest hubs have remained in the U.S. In cities like Dallas, Chicago, Atlanta, Charlotte, cities with lots of businesses, lots of Fortune 500 company headquarters, um, lots of local market, as well as the ability to connect. And in that context, St. Louis, 
you can think why St. Louis was a big hub at one point, but just isn't anymore. There's just not a big enough local market and the attraction of what is truly a nice geography in terms of central in the country and, you know, two hours from lots of places with a lot of people just isn't people realize that's not what makes a great hub anymore, but people used to think it did. So you kind of get why TWA was there, why when American bought TWA, they might have thought it could have been a good reliever for Dallas and Chicago, who are very constrained airports. But now it's just all about local market. And what Southwest does is flies to the biggest local markets and other airlines are going to fly St. Louis as a spoke to their own hubs. And so the good news is most of the cutting that's probably going to happen at a place like St. Louis has already happened. So when places like St. Louis or Memphis or Cincinnati still had two or 300 flights a day, uh, you think of a place like Cincinnati, it once had 600, but then it was down to two or 300, which was still more than the local market supported. It was fair to ask okay, how much more cutting is going to happen? But now, and I'll tell you what, let's just open Dio here for a minute, or Sirium, I should say, for a minute. Yeah, well, in the case of St. Louis, uh, you're still over 200, and that's because of because Southwest essentially has a uh, has a hub there, and that's you know St. Louis has a fair amount more activity than those other places uh, that I mentioned. If we say you know Cleveland, which has Southwest, uh, Memphis, uh, Cincinnati, to mention a few, uh, you know those airports are now down to, in the case of Memphis, less than 100 a day. Cincinnati, 100. 40, 150 a day, Cleveland, about that also. Uh, again, that's what they were doing a year ago before the COVID cuts. So St. Louis, actually somewhat more successful than those, thanks to what is essentially a Southwest hub, even though it doesn't call it that. Uh, but, you know, that that's, that's probably something that's sustainable there between what Southwest needs for its own traffic flow and, and just what the other airlines need for their own purposes. To, and to you know, Seth, you know Seth, I was surprised that, that he wrote that United's only flying to Chicago and Houston. I thought, do they really not even fly a regional to, to Newark? That seems like St. Louis, New York would be big enough for a regional jet for an animal up in Newark. And I looked it up and they do actually, United actually does have two flights a day flown by United Express St. Louis to Newark as well. And that's logical to me that they would do that. Yeah, and, and if you go back uh, again, go back a year, you know, forget what's going on right now because this is these are COVID times. But you go back a year and you imagine what things might look like a couple of years from now. And United flew to six places from from St. Louis. I'm looking now again in Syria here: Denver, Newark, as you said, Dulles, uh, Houston, and Chicago, as he said, and San Francisco. In the case of San Francisco, just once a day. So you know, all of their hubs basically. Uh, from from uh, St. Louis. So it's an important outstation for United. And that's basically what it is also for, for Delta and, and American at this point. And a, a, a rather important hub, if you want to call it that, for Southwest. Well, uh, time next for another listener question. But first, we want to thank Clear. Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports nationwide, moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com/airlines. 
That's www.clearme.com slash airlines. Evan of Atlanta writes, Ben asked for it. I've had this happen. Legacy flight one. He's giving us his example, obviously is late on the first leg to JFK and it will arrive after legacy one, the wide body continuation of the flight departs for Heathrow. I should say here, parenthetically, you might recall last week we talked about this, why airlines schedule as a marketing ploy, essentially uh, a flights on two different aircraft that have the same flight number so that it appears like it's a through flight, like it's just a continuation of the flight, but it might be a narrow body flight connecting to a wide body flight. And it's really just a connecting flight like any other. And Ben speculated, well, maybe there's some benefit if it makes it harder for the continuation to leave without the originating flight. I didn't know the answer to that. Well, this is Evan saying, uh, uh, dispatch will refile the flight plan for the first leg as legacy flight one a he's calling it legacy uh, airline X flight one a or legacy eight zero zero one or something so that the second leg can depart on time. And there is no duplicate flight number in the system. It's unlikely an international flight would delay for connections in my experience. Unfortunately, the through passengers may get to wave to their departing ride across the ocean as they taxi in. <laughs> well, good for Evan for pointing this out. You know, it seems to me if you are going to call the flight the same number that you won't have one of them leave before the other one arrives. I can see him making it kind of a tight connect, but uh, I'm really, thanks Evan for sort of finding <laughs> out that somebody actually took this idea this marketing idea and actually made took it to its absurd end where you could call where you could call flights that even overlap in time the same flight number you you just change the number if you if you can't raise the bridge just lower the water right well, <laughs> yeah, that's right the max is flying again in the u.s great news right well depends on whom you ask airlines confidential we'll be right back Seabury Capital is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime, and financial services and technologies. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at Seabury Capital. Dot com. That's Seabury Capital, S-E-A-B-U-R-Y Capital.com. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at AirlinesConfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Jason from Providence writes, I haven't read every single page of the Senate Commerce Committee's report on FAA oversight, but I've read enough to know that the FAA is still too cozy with industry and too hostile to whistleblowers. Uh, thinking about all these stories, Mac story after Mac story, Southwest pilots struggling to get the nose up, rickety work at Boeing's uh, South Carolina factory, what needs to happen to get to a sustainably better place? Again, that's Jason's characterization there. Uh, 
reading this on a week when American Airlines, of course, put the MAX back in the air. It went first among U.S. airlines, a few other MAX flights around the world, Goal most prominently, but United and Southwest still to come in the U.S., elsewhere in North America. Well, you have Aeromexico, I believe, has already put it up in the air, and then the Air Canada, WestJet, and, of course, lots of airlines around the world. The the families of the victims of those MAX crashes, uh, some of them have been particularly critical of the re-entry into service based on what Jason's saying, that Senate Commerce Committee's report, which I'll say also, I didn't read the whole thing, but uh, it, it did, along with noting some things that uh, went reasonably well, uh, basically said that the relationship between Boeing and the FAA, in the view of some of the investigators, is still too cozy, just like it was allegedly during the initial certification process, right? That that was the, the allegation that Boeing, uh, that the FAA wasn't truly independent enough uh, from Boeing. Now, look, the, the FAA uh, recertified the plane because it, in its view, got what it wanted in terms of an MCAS system that now relies on two sensors, right? You can't just have a faulty reading from one sensor, relies on two sensors, not just one, a system that is not as aggressive as it once was, that pilots should now be able to override and all the rest of it, right? Those things have actually changed. Uh, nonetheless, you have this criticism from, as I said, the families uh, and and other observers, and, and Jason here is expressing his own concern about that. Uh, I will say in, in, in terms of the industry as a whole, so on one hand, we know what happened with the Max and that, that obviously was uh, this just, uh, I mean, there's no word that that, that does justice to uh, how far that set the industry back, right? In, in, in some ways. Uh, on the other hand, in the aggregate, you still have an industry, and we mentioned this last week in a different context, that is about the safest it's ever been, right? So despite all of those things that Jason mentioned that raised some red flags, and you could name others, right, around the world, things that have gone wrong, when you add it all up in terms of fatality rates and all of that, uh, the industry is about as safe as, as it's ever been. So it's always important to consider that context. Uh, but what about that, Ben? I mean, you can't just dismiss the concerns, of course, of, of the families of those 300 uh, 46 crash victims. What about what Jason says and the Senate Commerce Committee's report? I think Jason brings up what is a concerning point. You know, I'm, I'm old, Seth, as you know, but I still remember my <laughs> days in college. And I remember taking a class in college on regulation where the basic premise of the class was that government agencies that regulate industry over time end up protecting the industries they were originally formed to regulate, right? And, mm -hmm. and it wasn't an airline class. Yeah. But, the, but in that time, and this was obviously many years ago when I was in college, right? <laughs> it's a, but, but they talked about sort of lots of examples of agencies that are ostensibly in place to regulate an industry, but end up with such a cozy relationship that they really end up protecting them from competition and, giving them special treatment and such. And yet that idea in some areas isn't nearly as uncomfortable as it is in something like the FAA 
with an airline and certifying a plane that might not be safe, or maybe the FDA approving a drug that isn't really safe or something like that, right? You could see sort of a non-airline way where it could be also really dangerous to people if, if the regulator or the overseer wasn't as diligent as they need to be. And right. I think the FAA, it's not in other words you're saying it's not just economics. It's not just people paying too much for cable TV yeah, or whatever yeah, it is. No, that it's not. I, I mean I yeah. think I think it's I think there's institutional risk here that Jason is alluding to and he might be right about that. And the way to avoid that I think is to you know keep the leadership fresh and and keep and keep things strong. You know, when I was at Spirit we originally were overseen by an FAA regional office in Detroit because that's where the company was head was originally um, started in Detroit. And over time, the airline sort of center of mass of at least as people moved to South, were in South Florida. And so the oversight office moved from the Detroit, you know, FISDO as it's called, flight service um of the flight service office to the Florida one. And that caused some real changes for spirit. And you might think that the, the FAA was one organization and sort of saw airlines the same way and audited them same, themselves the same way. But the reality is some of the things that Detroit frankly had let spirit get away with because they didn't want to lose spirit from their oversight. Um, the Florida people said, no, we, you need to be more diligent on that. And that was a good thing for spirit. It was a good thing for, for the FAA and everything. And so I think, I think changing leaders at times, reassessing sort of what's really important is, is really good. And it's really unfortunate that it took the crash of these two planes and the killing of, you know, 350 odd people to, to make the FAA realize, look, we can't sort of outsource this oversight to the company that's building the plane and has different incentives that we may have. And I think my sense, Seth, is that the engineering problems at this plane were probably fixed relatively quickly after the crashes. And the changes in the pilot training were probably understood what those would need to be relatively quickly after that. But it took 20 months or over 200 days in part because everybody had to be darn sure that those were the right things and that every I was dotted and T was crossed and that they, and that they made this right. And I think part of the delay of bringing the max back wasn't because it took that long to fix it, but, but was because it took that long to get everybody confident that confident that the fixes really were right. And that gets to sort of what Jason is talking about and and fixing it after the fact isn't nearly as good as doing it right the first time. So what we what we have to hope as flyers and as taxpayers and as everything is that the FAA has learned its lesson with the MAX, that the plane coming back is safe for all the right reasons that it understands and that there won't be another plane certified, you know, in such a for lack of a better term, cavalier fashion is the original Max, and that's probably a not an accurate word to use, but you the you the listeners will get my point in using it, I think. Right. And and this is one time where, you know, for all the times that people might think that people and companies didn't really pay the price for cutting corners, right? That a fine wasn't high enough, let's say, or whatever it is. This is one time 
where Boeing, I mean, and the FAA, but Boeing especially has paid many times over, right? I mean, I mean the the corners that they cut. If you think about just the the relatively little shortcuts that they took, right? The, the one sensor instead of the two, and and, uh, uh, and and not having the training that they probably should have had, and 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 all the rest of it. I mean, this has obviously cost them far in excess of what it would have cost them to just do this right in the first ca- in the first place. And so I think that's one thing you have to be, if anything, sort of happy about from a perspective of having the right incentives going forward, that uh, this is not something where somebody did something terrible and then suffered a hand, uh, slap on the wrist. This is the opposite. This is Boeing paying many times over uh, what it would have cost just to do this right in the first place. Liz of Des Moines writes, hi, Ben and Seth. Hope all is well. Hate the show. Thank you, Liz. I'm in business school pursuing an MBA and I have a job interview coming up with a big three airline. What out of the box suggestions do you have for interview prep in the box things I'm doing now to prepare our uh, read the 10 K. So it's a filing uh, annual filing re- re- review last six months of uh, wall street journal airline info. Uh, typical airline behavioral question prep, typical airline case question prep, read through website and offerings, understand why this airline and why airlines in general. Thank you. Love the show, Liz. Well, uh, I'm going to defer to Ben because I uh, am just a loser who's never actually had a job with an airline. (laughs) What do I know about getting a job with an airline? Well, first of all, Liz, congratulations. I think it's great that you're thinking about working for an airline, you know, in a, in a world where there are lots of great jobs in the U.S. and a lot of industries and big tech and things like that. You know, airlines are very traditional business in the sense of high capital, lots of regulation, lots of labor issues, but yet they can create fascinating careers. So I think it's great that you're thinking of this and I'm, I'm sure you're looking at other opportunities as well, but I hope you seriously think about working for an airline if it's something you're interested in. What I would think, Liz, and you know, I teach this class at George Mason and I try to give my students their tips on how to interview and we'll often do um, sort of role play interviews with them as well. And a number of them have gotten jobs in the industry in part because they understand some of the jargon. So make sure you know what things like RASM and CASM are and the airline you're interviewing for, how their basic airline metrics, meaning their unit revenues and costs compared to their competition. That'll be a good thing to know. If you're interviewing for a role in finance, Make sure you understand some of the more popular ways aircraft are financed these days, what an EETC is, what um, the role of aircraft lessors in the industry, things like that. You also, if it's going to be a finance kind of role, you might want to look at how airlines measure profitability. There's some great YouTube videos on this, one by a guy named Rick Zenny. Um, who does a real nice job explaining how airlines look at airline profitability. You might want to watch that YouTube. It's really good. Um, If you're looking at a role in pricing or revenue management, have an understanding of how that really works at an airline. 
the processing role of pricing versus the strategic role of pricing and what revenue management really is and how much is done by computers versus how much is done by people and get to know some of the details. Businesses of all types and airlines are included in this really like it when someone interviewing seems to have done more than surface level research and knows good questions to ask about the job they're applying for. So depending on the job you're applying for, know a little more detail. Know what the, what that airline, how that airline might stand out in that area or may have challenges in that area. But overall, I hope you have a great time with this interview. And I hope you get a good job at an airline that that, that you might like. And that when you compare that to your other opportunities, it's one you want to you might one you may want to take. The the industry needs really smart people. And and just the fact that you listen to this podcast says, well, you Maybe you're not one of them. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There's a there's a joke to be made there. Well, yeah. In, in all seriousness, lots of luck, Liz, and and thank you for listening and and for the question. Well, do you have a question for us? You could call us. 305-379-7429 to record a question. We'll play it on the air. You could email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you could jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. Finer wine is next, but first we want to thank Hotel Connections. Hotel Connections, the global market leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotel Connections is a Fortune 1000 company that makes travel management easier and less expensive with their AI-powered booking applications, intelligent learning algorithms, customizable rules engines, analytics, and global negotiated rate programs. For travel, logistics, hotels, transport, and technology solutions, visit hotelconnections.com. That's hotelconnections.com. Uh, beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for fine or wine. We listen to an actual customer complaint, and then we talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint. Yes, Seth. Kirk of Freedens, Pennsylvania is complaining about United. The flight attendant in first class placed personal belongings on the emergency exit handle of the main cabin door during a flight. This is a direct safety violation. I have pictures of this incident. Fine or whine, Ben. <laughs> well, I have to agree with him. I think this is one of the truest fines we've we've seen. And in fact, if that really did happen, and I assume Kirk wouldn't have written this if it didn't, I think he should send those pictures certainly to United Airlines and maybe to someone in the FAA because that really is that really is the wrong thing to do. Flight attendants, most flight attendants would not do that. They understand that that's not the way to, that's not the way that handle should be used. Um, air, airplane doors on the ground that open when they're not supposed to and deploy a slide is an enormous expense for the airline to repack that slide. It always disrupts lots of customers. And I can't imagine there's any procedure at United that says it's okay to do what Kirk claims he saw and took a picture of. Right. And of course, flight attendants, most of whom would not do that. Right. <laughs> uh, they understand they have to lead by example and, and, and do the right thing because you can't ask customers to follow the rules when you yourself aren't doing it. And I agree there to uh, fine. And maybe that person was just having a bad day and they weren't thinking all the rest of it. But uh, look, that's what Kirk saw. And and, uh, and, and it, it just can't happen in the 
as they always say, unlikely event of, of, uh, of something going wrong. You certainly wouldn't want to have that obstruction. Well, on final approach now, that does it for Airlines Confidential this week. Please, fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seatbacks and trade tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Baldanza. Have a great New Year's holiday, everyone. Talk to you soon. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.